0: Thanks for pressing play on this episode, all things creativity, innovation, and of course, design. You see, our guest today is an extraordinary human being. Her name is Sarah Stein Greenberg, and she is the executive director of Stanford's design school, AKA the D school. And she has a new book out called creative acts for curious people, how to think create and lead in unconventional ways. How do you like that? And they have taken years of learning and ideas and creativity from Stanford's D School and put it in this awesome new book. And we get into all of it. Sarah shares why reflection matters so much. Uh, She teaches me some of the new quote scaffolding for reflection. And I think you'll enjoy that, including the what, so what, and now what mental framework. Uh, She also tells me about why metacognition is important and why it matters. Uh, We dig into what it's like running one of the most well-known d-schools in the world and how design students are different today than they were in the uh, uh, not-so-distant past. Uh, We talk about the importance of games and play and fun in creativity and what it means to have a wordless conversation Uh, and so much more and pay special attention to Sarah's ideas on weird and the role of curiosity in creativity and design. Welcome to Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. We are the real dialogue podcast for business leaders with a different mind. My friends at NetSuite are the leaders in cloud ERP. They are the business system you need. Check out netsuite.com slash different today. And the value of data goes up exponentially almost daily. And that's why Splunk is the platform for bringing data to everything. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two and the letter E. And in our newsletter category pirates we go deep on ideas uh, data and framework that you won't get anywhere else Um, so check out lockhead.com today and subscribe to category pirates and my friends at malibu milk are the world's first whole plant organic flax milk and they can't keep that stuff on the shelves for a reason so check out malibu milk with a y.com today now as joey Ramone said hey ho let's go Well, Sarah, it sure is great to see you.
1: Nice to meet you as well.
0: And um, are you at the D School right now? It looks like you might be.
1: I am. This is one of my very first days back in the the real physical world of being on Stanford's campus. And what you're looking at behind me is what we call the library, which is like a our heads down. It's our one space that isn't sort of extroverted and vibrant and you know full of whiteboards. It's mostly a, a you know reflection, reading, writing space.
0: Ah, so is reflection important for uh, creativity?
1: (laughs) I mean, just a little bit, (laughs) as you can imagine. (laughs) Um, You know, I think reflection is kind of the, like, the underappreciated partner of action in a lot of cases. I think, you know, people think about creativity and they think about, you know, sort of like brainstorming and exuberance and that, that spark of inspiration. But reflection, I think about it as it's like the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. If you're a peanut butter and jelly sandwich fan, like, you're feeling me those two things are, you know, inextricably linked action and reflection. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of those quiet moments where you're trying to make sense of your data. You're trying to make sense or, or really think about what might be the implications of your creative work. It's, it's super important. And do you
0: distinguish between reflection and thinking, or how do you think about the word reflection and the word thinking?
1: Yeah, thinking is a really big category. So thinking might include everything from, you know, coming up with new ideas or, um, you know, charting the vision or, or even some parts of analysis or research and reflection is both the sort of, you know, could be a personal reflection, just like some personal quiet time, thinking about your own process or practice or thinking about your data critically. And reflection in particular benefits from some like specific scaffolding or practices. So the, the one, one that I absolutely love is a practice called what, so what, now what, which a few of my colleagues um, originated. Can you just say
0: those words uh, uh, again? Some of us, uh, some of us are not that smart and we drink a lot.
1: Yeah, no, no worries. The scaffold is called what, so what, now what. And you can kind of have an unscaffolded reflection and think about like, oh, what did I just learn in that particular class or that particular project? How do I want to improve my own work? But if you use a scaffold like what, so what, now what, you really sort of get into the detail. So you might write down everything that happened. Then you might think about what did all of that mean? Why is that important? Why did that feel like what I wanted to capture? And then now what is the opportunity to think for each of those so what's for each of those implications. What do I want to do about that? Is that something I want to practice? Is that something I want to improve? And um, my colleague, Leticia Britos-Cavignaro, who who came up with this said, you know, the quality of reflections changes dramatically if you use that kind of that kind of detailed scaffold.
0: Hmm. I just love everything about what you just said, uh, Professor.
1: (laughs) Thanks so much. What did you like in particular? What resonates?
0: Well, first of all, I love it when somebody gives me a new framework. Hmm. a a new lens because, and it's a simple lens, but clearly a smart, powerful lens. And I can already see how I would start to use it. So I think what, so what, and now what is, is a great, powerful little framework. And so what was the name of the, your colleague who came up with that again?
1: Leticia Britos Cavanaro.
0: Well, Leticia sounds like a very smart person to me.
1: She is. She's really an expert in reflection. An ex- she's an expert in reflection? I know it sounds crazy that that is...
0: No, but I love this. What's an expert in reflection?
1: You know, she really is um, one of those people who reads every new paper and all of the available research. And she is a consummate practitioner and experimenter. So she understands from the academic perspective, what has been shown to work, what's happening cognitively when you use some of those frameworks. But then she also um, is incredibly bold in the classroom or working with design teams. And she will have people try just about anything and then learn from that empirical evidence about what's working and, and what actually helps people move their creative practice forward.
0: I love everything you just said. And I love everything it sounds like she's doing.
1: Well, I love the opportunity to brag about my amazing colleagues and and co-faculty. So I appreciate it.
0: Well, we're going to get into your job because I think you have a job that at least a lot of people in my world think you have maybe the greatest job in the world, but we'll, we'll get to that maybe in a second. But I wanted to bounce this off of you because, you know, the D school is obviously famous for a lot of things, but, but I think for me. It's, it's, it's most famous for this stuff and what I, I, so let me, let me bounce this off you. One of our favorite expressions around here is thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking. And, you know, and I talk to my colleagues about this a lot and maybe we're just getting pessimistic and grumpy, you'll tell me, but it seems like we live at a time where what often passes for thinking is not thinking is not reflection with some of this yummy scaffolding that you're teaching me, but is the regurgitation of something I heard that I like. And so what passes as thinking today is actually mental and sometimes verbal and sometimes digital retweets. And most of the time people retweet the shit without even reading it. And so I just think we're at a weird time where there's like not a lot of thinking and there's certainly not a lot of conversation. Being a champion for authentic conversation is an insane thing to me. Why why that's a thing we need to champion, I'll never know, but apparently it is. So anyway, all that said, Professor, um, what's your reflection on, A, that thinking about thinking is the most important kind of thinking, and B, a lot of what we call thinking today is actually mental or verbal retweeting of things and, and, and not really thinking things.
1: Well, I could not agree more that thinking about thinking is vital. And the one one phrase that I like, although you know it is very, it's very wonky, is metacognition, right? That is the technical term for thinking about thinking. And it's one of those kind of secret skills that I I firmly believe should be embedded in the heart of our education right and and what goes along with that is the idea of knowing how you learn learning how you learn is actually the key to uh, like being able to then continue to be a learner no matter what environment you're in some people love school some people don't love school but that does not mean that anyone can't keep learning throughout their entire life and that that's actually where reflection which we just talked about is so important right because that's that's actually how you can start to take control of understanding what are the conditions under which i learn best what are the kinds of um, environments that push, push me and allow me to stretch? Um, what's so far out of my comfort zone that it actually makes me shut down? And that kind of self-awareness is, is part of that practice of, of learning how to learn. And I think, you know, for me, this is, what it, this is how it links to my day job, is that design is a practice for active learning about the world when you start working on a design project when you start trying to come up with something that you hope is going to be innovative you don't know the answer you may actually be you know fairly new to the context or the situation or you may be trying to deliberately approach it with some naivete some fresh eyes and so you are setting out on a journey that is all about learning how quickly can i figure out how to pu- how to pull the pieces together how to look at this in a novel way how to engage people who come at this from all different lenses And that kind of rigor that we have in design is what is that scaffold. It's what allows you to be good at learning when you don't know the answer and you may not even know the context particularly well. And to take that one step further, I'll just say that that set of skills in the current moment that we're living through could not be more important, right? We are all on a daily basis solving problems or trying to rise to challenges that most of us have never faced before that don't have clear answers we're you know whether that's you know in your home you're trying to figure out how do i support my kids in this weird time around par- you know partly remote learning partly in person or like me if you're just transitioning back to an office environment what is the new social etiquette or you know i was chatting with your producer earlier like we're experiencing this you know incredible season of fires in california what are the new ways in which we're interacting and trying to prevent those so these are These are uncharted challenges for all of us. And the ability to continue to be a learner and to continue to bring your own creative abilities to those kinds of challenges, like that's actually what we need everyone to be able to do.
0: Amen. Hallelujah, Professor. Thanks. Now, if I could go back to reflection, um, the other thing that has sort of struck me over the last handful of years is, and this is going to sound stupid and obvious, but You know, some of us didn't go to Stanford, Um, (laughs) but uh, you can't schedule innovation, creativity, or the reflection required to do those things uh, between uh, 3.30 and 4 o'clock on Thursdays. And so I think the interesting thing about the pandemic is it has forced reflection on many of us because we were told to stay home. And so all of a sudden you did have more time. You weren't commuting, you couldn't go to dinner, et cetera, et cetera. And so some of us, and I think a lot of us, I mean, I'm sure you've read a lot of the things that I've read that somewhere between 50 to 80% of Americans are now considering a job change or a complete career change are the range of numbers I've seen, but whatever it is, it's, it's pretty huge. And, you know, we've been, we've been writing a little bit about uh, what the New York times calls the YOLO economy and what this means. And, why people aren't wanting to go back to their shitty jobs and all of that. And so I'd just be curious from your vantage point as a society, we're in this giant moment of reflection that seems to be leading at least some to creativity. We have a big uptick in, in startups. So tell me about this time of reflection and how this part of our existence in the world looks through your eyes.
1: Yeah, I mean I think one one thing you're making me think about is the difference between the experience that I'm having of this moment where you know I'm kind of a I mean in the middle of my career, I've had a lot of different experiences over the course of my life and this has been a moment of reflection and and found time in some cases where I've been able to do a lot of writing. I've been able to do more of the kinds of things that I think lead to the kind of reflective posture and maybe some of the big life changes that you're describing. I think about some of the reactions that some of our students had, right. Especially at the beginning, which is, this is, you know, now a huge percentage of their lives. This, this pandemic has uh, unfolded, um, you know, over it's a, it's a, you know, 20, a 20th, right. For some of them or even a little bit more. And I think that that is going to be a really interesting thing to follow and to understand what kind of implications there are from that. And I, I, that's a question for me. I don't know kind of what to make of that exactly, but I think the, um, you know, there's no doubt this will be like a defining, a defining moment for younger people and i wonder you know for for people who went through the world wars or other long long endured periods of of adversity and challenge i wonder if some of those dynamics won't be similar and i think about some of the values that you know folks from my grandparents generation had and the ways in which those formative experiences really shaped them and i guess i'm hopeful i'm i don't feel naively optimistic but i feel hopeful about what the younger generations might make of this and how the, maybe it's the extended time with family or it's the, that sense of, of you only live once and missing out and wanting to actually do something meaningful as a result. Those are the kinds of things that I, I hope will have kind of imprinted in the, in the current generation.
0: Interesting. The other thing that's fascinating about this is of course, crisis creates opportunity and crisis creates new categories of thinking and products and services. And, uh, you know, if we reflect for just a moment, we, we see new categories of innovation and new design that has made a difference for uh, many of us throughout this pandemic. And so how does this moment in time look through, you know, a legendary designer and design educator's eyes?
1: Well, I think one of the undeniable shifts that's happening is the ways in which we're all grappling with new technologies. And, you know, there's the digital revolution, but there's also the revolutions that are that are in progress. So artificial intelligence, designing with algorithms, thinking about how design and data come together, and then ones that are even, you know, next on the horizon, like actually designing with DNA, designing around biology. And one of the ongoing, um, challenges that, uh, at the D school we're really focused on is how do we equip design students who, you know, in past generations, you'd be building with wood, right? You'd be building with something where you can know and predict the evolution of how that material will change over time, right? It might, it might degrade a little bit, but it's not gonna, there's not gonna be big surprises if you're building a chair out of wood. If you're building with an algorithm and you're designing that into the heart of your business, or you're building with biology and you're creating a new organism, we don't know what all of the effects are gonna be. And those effects are gonna actually continue to change as this ecosystem into which they're released responds. So there is a whole new era of what does it look like to think into the future about the implications of your creative work or the, your, your business choices or your design work. How are the things that you are making and building actually affecting not just the current moment and the current market, but the future? And that's a, that's a slightly different type of thinking and a new challenge for designers to rise to. So that is one of the topics that we are deeply working on.
0: So I just want to make sure I understand, Professor, that in the past, if I was working on, on with wood and we were talking about chairs, that's sort of a context, a paradigm that I can sort of understand. And if I I sort of have an appreciation that if I cut the wood this way, or if I do a certain thing, it's going to have a certain outcome. And it lives inside of a predictable box is what you're saying is the new world because it's digitally, uh, it's digital first. If maybe I could call it that and you can feel free to correct me, of course. But when we do digital things, um, the sort of contextual paradigm or box that our creativity and innovation lives in changes radically. That is to say, once we unleash our digital thing, it may go into places and do things we maybe didn't expect. Is that, is that what I'm to understand here?
1: Yeah, you're tracking perfectly. I mean, and digital could mean social media, right? I think we can all agree. We are, we've, we're living with some unintended consequences and outcomes uh, from, from just, just, you know, connecting on online And it also could mean, you know, some of these more um, esoteric technologies like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and synthetic biology. And actually, two of my colleagues, um, Scott Dorley and Carissa Carter, they have a name for these types of mediums. They call them mischievous materials, because they do continue to evolve and change and create systemic effects that you can't quite predict. So the challenge of what it means to move from that more predictable known universe to one in which the things we make, the mediums in which we build continue to change after we, after we ship those products. That's a really, that's a new era that we're in.
0: I'm trying to see if I can come up with an, an analogy in my head. Would it maybe be the, I don't know, see if this works. I'm j- just spitballing out loud with you. Maybe the difference between tennis and surfing because tennis is in a controlled environment and yes, there might be a little bit of wind or, you know, maybe you'll get the, the weather will change a little, but the court isn't fucking moving. Right. And, and you can surf a thousand waves and the next thousand waves are going to be different than the last thousand waves. So is that sort of.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm turning that analogy over in my head. I really like that, but I might add like an unpredictable weather pattern and some novices like some novice surfers and, you know, a couple of like legendary sea monsters. Like, I think there's just like a whole new level of unpredictability in the ocean that is emerging technology at the moment. And by the way, I'm not- beware the Kraken? (laughs) Beware the Kraken, exactly. I mean, I'm not, I am really not saying we should not be designing with these technologies because you can see the potential for all of the good that they can do. But I think that as creators- we have to be thinking differently about not just the short term, but actually the long term impact. And that's, that's this piece that we're, we're, we're thinking about. How do we build that into every designer? How do we train designers to work across any medium? And how do we embed that sense of um, foresight and future orientation in them?
0: So when you say long term impact, I can't help but have a couple things come to mind. You know, the the big one probably being our privacy. And I think the average person didn't have an understanding when we said, sure, I'll go sign up for a Facebook account. um, What was about to happen? Forget the social part of it and online. bullet. Forget all that for a second. Just the, oh, fuck. Um, We've now created this surveillance economy and we're a product that they monetize. And, you know, that has turned out to be Pretty freaking evil. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about, Professor?
1: I mean, I think that the, I think we're, we are living in an era where we have not figured out how to um, balance the values trade offs that that kind of business model represents. So we as consumers might appreciate that it's free to use that product. We might be not totally aware because until recently, There haven't been laws about transparency of how we were surrendering so much of our data, and then how that enabled the company to be able to target us with advertising in a way that is shaping—not just advertising, but information—that is shaping the kind of echo chamber we live in. So that we we don't really have, I think, a, a strong enough sensibility, and I and I mean like as an average person or citizen like what's my participate I know how to participate in like voting in my local school board election but am I like how do I actually start to to take my place in thinking about this as as really a democratic problem right as as how how do we balance the things that actually should we we can we need to have a uh you know society wide norm around which often happens to regulation or policy and those, and, and what's my individual role as a citizen in advocating for that? And I, 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 that seems to me like we're still thinking about those kinds of products and experiences as um, mostly consumer experiences rather than as issues that really we should be looking at at that, at that you know, society level. And, hey, we have a process for dealing with that. It's called democracy, right that's actually how we can figure out what are our priorities and trade-offs between how a business might optimize its its profit or its product and the impacts for consumers and what you know rights might be or what, around privacy or other things and what the other you know you know kind of negative externalities might be so i think there's you know this is just beginning um, but i i would say each of us um, even if you aren't ever going to be the one who like understands the code right, and don't see yourself as a technologist, really understanding the implications of what's being created, that is something that we can each participate in.
0: Yes, interesting. Uh, I'm also curious maybe how you think about, if you think about any technology category breakthrough in innovation, pretty much of all time, There's positives and negatives associated with it, and it can be used for good and for bad. Maybe it's not true of every new category of things, but it's true for a lot of them. I mean, an automobile is an incredible uh, innovation. It has transformed humanity. It has made life materially different uh, for people. And at the same time, tens of thousands of people a year get killed in these things. Of course, they pollute the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And so, Is it is it clear to me that the automobile is a net positive for humanity? I think it probably is. But at the same time, it comes with a tax. And so if you think about that over over history, professor, how do you think about that today? Are things different with that today? Is it the same, but just the technologies have changed? Or how would you think about that today as opposed to 20 years ago or, or 50 years ago?
1: I mean, one difference to me is the time scale and it, that's related to what we were talking about in terms of the these new mischievous materials the the degree to which you can have rapid impact and those unintended consequences i mean it is almost faster than we can keep up with so it's and that's that's an interesting place then for me as somebody who believes in human creativity used for innovation to be right so i don't want to slow down progress at the same time in this new era, with all of these new materials, we have to have some new approaches and be thinking about um, greater transparency, as I said, more foresight. How do you embed the, the, those kinds of community values into what you're doing? So I, I think these are all really important discussions for designers and people in business to be, and technology to really be having and to sort out how do how do we balance those trade-offs and just like your example with the automobile there's no this this product is absolutely good and this product is absolutely bad it's can we make a better product can we make one that's less bad and you know from my perspective i don't want the design work that we do to be harmful <laughs> so that's my that's my compass and i think the that's that's an important part also of maturing you know as a designer or as a creator is like what's your ethical compass that's that matters that shows up in the work that you do and what you put out into the world.
0: Hmm. Say more about um, Ethical Compass, if you don't mind.
1: Sure. Um, so one of the things that I really enjoy about being at the d.school is that you get exposed to this wide variety of different perspectives. We mean that in terms of disciplinary perspectives, like we have engineers working with business students, working with medical students, working with law students or policy students. And also, you know, our students come from all over the world. They carry different value systems, and that um, the conversations that then ensue in our student teams are really vibrant because you're really looking at things through different lenses and different life experience. And I think you know one important discussion that's happening around how teams are composed, for example, is is the topic for, of racial diversity, right? If you are composed of a you know homogenous team, if, you, if your team is composed of a homogenous group, you are much less likely to really understand the full possibility and impact of the work that you're doing. And at this moment in this country, that's really, really important to pay attention to and arguably always has been and always should be. So that's, those are the kinds of values that we, we want to create a, an opportunity for our students to wrestle with and to expose as, as a part of the creative work that they're doing. Um, there are a couple of um, assignments that we use that I'm really fond of that get at, get at some of this. Um, one of them is called Your Inner Ethicist, uh, which was created by my colleague Stuart Coulson. And in that, um, essentially, using a series of short articles that take opposing views around a particular topic, we'll have students state, you know, they're randomly assigned to the topic, so they can't just choose the thing they're already confident about arguing for. And they will go through a series of very short debates. And after each round, all of the students vote for which, which, you know, side they're leaning towards. And what's really interesting is that the votes are often kind of close to 50 50, right? It's, and what students then realize is, Oh, I'm in a, I'm in a diverse community. There are people who are all on all sides of this issue who I'm working with and who, you know, represent the conceivable market for what we're working on. So what does that tell me about how I have to be aware of and taking into consideration all of these different ways of looking at the same issue? So I, I think that, you know, the ethical compass, um, you know, sometimes it gets like uh, reduced to this idea that ethics are like a checklist that somehow, you know, if you just like check these boxes, you, you won't create any harm in the world. You're a great person. You're, you know. But actually it's, a, it's this constant practice of evaluating and, and figuring out you know, how, how is the world changing? How is my work changing the world? And how do I continue to make things better in a dynamic landscape?
0: Yes. And there are things today that we consider and think about that we didn't consider and think about five years or 10 years or 15 years ago, right? I mean, it's... Yeah. Do you think that's any different? Like, is it have we had any kind of a sea change or are we just evolving as human beings? And there's certain things we said and did that we would never say and do today. And, uh, and that's good. And we're, we're, we're improving as, as a society, as, as, as individuals, and we're treating each other hopefully in improved ways. And that's hopefully been the history of humankind. Or is there something different happening now?
1: I mean, I think that I, I, that's a beautiful description of the history of humankind. I think it's been in fits and starts, <laughs> depends on who you are and what part of the world you live in. Right. Um, I didn't
0: say it was up and to the right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it looks a lot more like a squiggle.
1: But I do. I mean, and I, I think that's, I think that's what it, what it means to be in a, you know, a society where we have the right to speak our minds and we can, we can talk about, you know, our different beliefs openly. Um, we're clearly, you know, having trouble communicating uh, in this country in ways that are empathetic and kind and caring. But I do think that, you know, I, I think that process is important in, in a democratic society. You know, it goes back to that, the, the conversation we we're having about learning, right? It's like, I think we are constantly learning. And the more that we're open to hearing from perspectives that maybe haven't been heard as much across society, that is part of that, that is part of that evolution, that progress. So I think that, you know, while it's uncomfortable, especially as an adult, especially as, you know, if you're in a position where you're supposed to already be an expert, it's an uncomfortable moment to be like, oh, I didn't, I didn't even know about that history. Like, I didn't know that that happened. That is just, it's crucial, right? It's really, really important to to keep that learning mindset.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. Professor, uh, as a side note, we had, um, the greatest chess player ever, Gary Kasparov on a little while ago. And of course he's Russian. He's very outspoken about Putin and, and and has a lot of outspoken things to say about Russia, uh, which requires a lot of courage, but that's a different, a different point. He said something that I had not thought of. Uh, He said, isn't it interesting that this disease started or was created? Who knows? Maybe we'll never know, but began in China and was solved in the United States. And, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I, I think I'm directionally right as to his point. His point was only in a free society where you are free to create, where you are free to take risks, where you are free to disagree publicly, um, could you have such rapid innovation that you could never have the solution called a vaccine take place so quickly in a authoritarian government. That was, I think, his perspective.
1: I mean, I think, you know, he's, he clearly has been, you know, deeply shaped by the, by the experiences that he's had. I think that, I, I, I think creativity can live anywhere, but I do think that the structures of that, that grow up in, in a, um, in an environment that values that kind of progress. I, I do think that that is an assist, right? There, there is a reason that a lot of, places come to a place like Silicon Valley to try to figure out like, what has it, what, what are those structures that have allowed for so much innovation? And it's partly the financial model and community that's here. It's partly the technical depth and expertise. Maybe there's a cultural aspect. I'm not sure. Um, I will tell you that anywhere I've traveled in the world, there have been exceptionally creative people and, and actually, you know, it's kind of my, my core belief that everyone is creative, but there are things that like hold individuals back from expressing that, whether that's the way you were trained in your job or whether that's your, your, you know, the, the foundational education that you had. So I, I think I have maybe a little bit more of a, a hopeful stance towards creativity and, and, and innovation, which is like, it can, it can emerge anywhere. And I think there are structural um, supports that you can put in place that, that try to do that. Um, You know, and one, one example I'll just give from the D school from my own experience is that we are really into play and games and fun, and it creates this very human warm environment. And that does not mean that we don't, you know, take our work really seriously and take the, the designs that we, you know, produce really seriously. But that's one of those um, kind of conditions that we try to set, which is to make it okay to play and to experiment and to, you know, kind of fall in love with your process and your work and your, and your ideas.
0: It's interesting. We, uh, I had a conversation with professor Ed Slingerland from the uh, university of British Columbia, and he's a history prof and a philosophy prof and To the best of my knowledge, he's written the first book on why getting drunk matters. And the book's called Drunk. Uh, You know, how we how we got drunk and created the world. I, I forget the subtitle, but it's something along those lines. And one of the things that he said, you know, the reason he did this work was he said that everything that's ever been written about getting drunk is it's bad for you and it causes people to get in fights. So don't don't get drunk. And he had this aha that said, well, wait a minute. If we've been getting drunk for 13,000 years, which is what he discovered, um, there must be an evolutionary reason for it. And one of the things that he shared with me, Professor, is that what it does is if you and I have a glass of wine or a beer together, it lowers our inhibitions with each other. And he actually said it's a pretty extraordinary thing when a human being has a drink with another human being, because if you and I do that together, we are saying we're willing to relax, let our guard down a little and um, maybe let a little bit of something come out that might not otherwise, you know, that's why they're called spirits. Right. And so, so I guess my question in all that is most corporate environments are not creative. Most corporate environments don't allow time for reflection. Many of us are working 80 hours a week. Uh, We're not traveling right now, but we're zooming the shit out of each other. And so, If I was a CEO or an entrepreneur and I said to you, you know, professor, I mean, you literally sit at the center of one of the most innovative creative places on planet earth. There can be no question about that. How do we embrace more creativity and more sort of uh, forward on our skis, uh, innovation and design thinking in our business?
1: Well, I think the, I have to read that book. That sounds really fascinating. Um, and I think the thing that w- while it's a we great do episode not- <laughs> too, Edge one
0: hell of a professor, he's a very fascinating guy. Anybody who studies getting drunk is an immediate friend of mine.
1: <laughs> uh, I mean, what a what a cool what a cool career move. I mean, you must have to do a lot of lot of primary research. Um, you know, I think that one of those things that happens when you have that glass of wine with somebody or that beer is that you, when your inhibitions are lowered, you show a little more of your true self, just a just a little bit, right? And that is this, that, that thing, not the drinking part. We might not do that in a, in a classroom, uh, at the d-school, but we, we do have a set of norms and practices that are about exactly that. And it is about trust and it is about building deeper relationships with other people. And you know, one, one activity that I'm very fond of that is actually really good, even if you are only interacting with your colleague or your team remotely at this moment, um, is, a, is a very cool assignment developed by Glenn Fajardo, who um, has been teaching at the D-School for a long time. And he calls it the wordless conversation. And it's actually developed for um, people who are working together who are a cross-cultural pair. And he points to some interesting research that actually having relationships with people across cultures sparks your creativity. It can can be a part of of amplifying your own creative work. And so, but when you're working across cultures, especially if you don't share a primary language, all of your behavior needs to be about like supporting that, you know, somebody, it may take a while to get your point across. You don't want to embarrass, you don't want to feel embarrassed when you're, you know, sharing something, and so how do you know your partner is going to have the patience, right, to let those let those ideas come out, maybe at a different pace? Um, and where where are there opportunities for like cultural misunderstandings that could be misinterpreted in a in a way that you know feels damaging to the trust, or you know, you kind of build into your rapport? So his his assignment is that um, people will take photos of for a full 24 hours of their day. And then they'll have a 20 minute conversation that only involves sending a photo and responding with a photo. No words are allowed, no emojis. That's cheating. And it allows two people who don't talk, who don't speak the same language to have a conversation. So those kinds of practices, that doesn't take a long time. That shouldn't be, you know, there's no barrier to anyone on any team in any company running that as a, as a trust building experience for a team. So I think that if you understand and believe that trust is foundational in creative work, there are many ways quite effectively without spending, you know, huge amounts of time or money on corporate retreats that you can start to build that into a culture.
0: Awesome. That was awesome. Thank you. Um, The other one I wonder about, uh, I'm in a business situation now with two partners in uh, writing a newsletter we call Category Pirates. And we put out five to eight thousand words a week. And so and we've developed a process for doing this. And it is the most fun and hyper creative thing I've ever done that's ongoing. Right? So I've done things that are like this and they're project-oriented. And sometimes they're long project oriented. You know, my first book was like this. And, you know, I've worked on software projects and things along those lines that you have this feeling and there's this magical pixie dust that gets somehow sprinkled on the team. And, and, you know, so for example, with Eddie and Cole on category pirates, when one of them calls me or texts me, I'm like, Oh yeah, it's, it's Cole on the phone. Right. Or, or, you know, like today's the day that I'll get the first draft of the next letter from Cole. He writes the first draft and it's like Christmas morning for me. And I'll probably spend two hours working on it after I get it. And I'll be happy as shit. And I'll put my headphones on and I'll crank Van Halen and I'll just get way into it and love it. So anyway, here's my question. If you've been lucky enough to be on a team like that or teams like that over time, it it almost seems like as intentional as you want to be, there is a magical, you know, what the French call a certain I don't know what that is part of being in one of these hyper-creative, hyper-innovative, hyper-fun, hyper-trusting, where there's, there's literally zero bullshit. How do we create more of that in our work, Professor?
1: I mean, I think, one, you, you are a great example of somebody who knows very clearly what the dynamics are that, are, that help you be in that space with these two other guys. And that just that self-knowledge is really powerful because then that allows you to seek those kinds of collaborations in the future and to and to articulate, here's what works for me in a creative partnership. So going forward, you might be way more selective or or good at then saying like, oh, you know, Cole used to do this thing that actually would really help me feel confident and excited. You know, I'm going to just tell my new team that that's what really works for me and invite that kind of conversation from everyone. So I think we... we those magical collaborations that just seem to work with no effort, those can be so instructive because then you can say, you can, you can feel more confident about bringing that same topic up with your future teams that haven't quite found their rhythm. And I think, you know, no team looks exactly like the last team, but if you can surface that as like, I want us to all feel that way right? That's what, like, and have that explicit conversation, that, that is actually really valuable. And one of the things that, um, can often happen in teams, like when they're getting close to a deadline is like, there are some, you know, bad team dynamics that can come up, right? One people, one person is like, I did all the work or another person is like, I don't get listened to. And under the stress, that's when all of that stuff sort of explodes. What I often see students do is like, they think that, they, that the right thing to do is to just work on the project harder and get to the deadline. And the closer they are to the deadline, the less likely they are to pay attention to and work on those dynamics. But taking care of the human behavior and the feelings and the real emotions that are happening between people is, is really worth the time, especially if you have an approaching deadline. If you do not work on those, you won't get to the kind of outcome in terms of the, the product that you're trying to create, it in a way, one in a way that you're going to want to ever work with those people again, perhaps, or th- that can really fulfill both the goal of you know the work being good and the collaboration being good. So I think that that is a a little bit of a flip that people can make is that it is worth it to pay attention to those dynamics and to develop the confidence and skills to know that if you call out, hey, this this part of our collaboration isn't working for me. That's not a bad thing. You're not getting in the way of the work. That is the work.
0: Thank you. That was great. I'm also very curious. and I know I don't have you for much more time. I'd like to do a 400 hour series with you if you'd like. But uh, um, we have a theory that sort of roughly goes like this. Um, There are, when you look at the numbers, there are about 140 million people uh, under the age of 35 in the United States. And there's about 138 million, roughly 39 million above the age of 35. And the aha that we've had of late is that if you're, if you're 35 or younger, you're actually a new category of person. The first new category of person we've had in a very, very long time. And that is because you've grown up with the machines and particularly the smartphone and the cloud, your primary experience of life is actually a digital one. And your analog experience is your secondary experience. And that's why you're a native digital. And if you're a native analog, AKA over 35, your primary experience of life is an analog experience. And your digital experience is an adjunct or an add on or an enhancement to your analog one. And if you're native digital, that's exactly the opposite. And so I have questions for you about that uh, as it relates to your students. But before I ask you the questions, do you accept that premise or how does that premise sound to you?
1: You know, I think, I think directionally there's something really important there. I don't know if it's, you know, like every single person would fit that, fit that profile or, or or have those, those same implications. And I wonder, and that's a good question, you know, like, you know, is that a place where the place you grew up makes a difference, the family in which you grew up, all of those other things. I do think that, you know, we see certain skills that need more development in in our students today, and they have certain needs and preferences and ideas, and, you know, they are really facile in this digital world. So that is, you know, sometimes a huge advantage. Um, but I think, I, I, you know, I think I would say roughly I would agree with that that premise that there is... Um, something really different about having grown up in a, in a, in the digital era.
0: And so how does that change um, the kinds of initiatives, the kinds of programs, the kind of learning that design students at Stanford want to do today? If, if, if there's some truth to that premise there, the, the students you have today are very different than whoever was, who was ever in your chair 15 years ago. Is that safe to say?
1: I think I think in some ways, yes, and I think you know you can see that in terms of the preferences and the sort of innate the instincts that that students have about like what medium to build in, right? Like you know, there was a moment where it just was like, oh, we'll build a website, and now it's you know, oh, we'll build an app, or even you know, you know, more more likely, oh, we'll build an algorithm, (laughs) Um, and that that is definitely apparent. Um, I think that. one of the most important takeaways for educators is that we should recognize that designing compelling learning experiences I mean, this has always been true, but it is not widely practiced necessarily, is like you need to know who you're designing for. And the, the you know, if you are on the other side of that generational gap, the other side of that, that 35-year-old line, I think it, it does require an extra empathetic stretch. To really walk in the shoes of of our students, and um, I think that's a real I think that's a real challenge for education. Um, and there's some you know exciting innovation happening in various places. Um, we did a big project a few years ago called I mean it, it, at the time it seemed so far into the future. It was called Stanford 2025. Now that that year is fast approaching. Um, and we looked at some of these these big shifts, and and we asked some big questions like, why do we think that college is something that only has to happen, you know, in early adulthood, right? Like, why isn't college something that you enroll in and then you just go back every couple of years, you know, because we're going to need to support people in making career transitions throughout their lives in a way that the, the current model isn't really designed and built for, right? And another another um, thread that we followed is the degree to which you know, if students are passionate about un- and, and have a reason why they want to learn something, there's so much more intrinsic motivation. So how could we kind of flip the paradigm and instead of having, you know, your sort of like your internships and your project-based learning happen later on during a degree program, how can we put that at the beginning so that students can actually figure out and experiment with what, what does learning mean to them? Why do they want to learn this material? That completely changes the, the dynamic in a classroom. So I I see education as a as a canvas for a ton of creative work, and it's really necessary because there are there are some um, there are some meaningful shifts that are occurring.
0: And, and for years, Stanford and I'm not an expert, of course, but from what I can see, has done wonderful things with ongoing education and certain uh, certification programs and things along these lines. Yes.
1: Yeah there there are lots of different um, programs and even as early as high school right i think the idea that you know you ju- there's like a you know the boundaries around what a institution of learning needs to look like are people are experimenting with what that what that should look like and i think as we as we ask the question of like how can we be most useful to society those those the answers are changing over time as as these categories start to shift and people's needs really change
0: so, uh, Professor, why can't I go to Stanford for the rest of my life? Why would I want to stop going to Stanford?
1: I mean, you might be enjoying the job that you have and the work that you're doing in the world, but then at some point you might want to you know, shift and change careers and come back. And we, we called this idea the open loop university, the idea that people could loop in and loop out over the course of their lifetimes. And, you know, I think that that idea has some really, really interesting legs. And I'd love to see a future in which that was a possibility.
0: Yeah. And there's certain elements of Stanford, yours being a huge one, of course, where, uh, as a creative person, as a marketer, I'm not a designer, but uh, I could see lots of reasons why I would want to touch in with you at various points. Um, Tina Selig, Professor Selig, of course, has done an unbelievable job, the Entrepreneurial Thought Leaders Series program. And it just seems like there's been a lot of things that have happened sort of on an evolutionary basis over time at Stanford, where you are exposing a lot of what you're doing internally, if I could call it that way, externally. And I think things like all the TEDx talks and the TED Talks, I think what the folks at Masterclass have done, I think there's been a lot of things that have happened over the last handful of years that expose exactly what you're on, Sarah, which is some of us actually want to keep learning forever. Some of us are really interested and curious about shit. And so um, is there a thinking that sort of if I wanted to go to Stanford for the rest of my life, maybe I could one day?
1: (laughs) I think you can cobble together a pretty interesting a pretty interesting path from from some of the existing uh, the existing offerings. Um, we love to have people at the D School come and join us for our workshops and programs at various stages of life because I mean it really enriches the it really enriches the experience um, and, and then people kind of tune up their creative skills and then they make incredible things. Um, so I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. So I can't, I can't, uh, I can't promise you, uh, the, the golden ticket. I wish that that existed, but I would, uh, I would definitely like poke around and see the different offerings. Cause there are, there are many, and I think that's part of what makes this campus really exciting.
0: It is no doubt a very exciting place. Uh, now, clearly I could talk to you forever. Um, but I do want to be respectful of the fact that you've got a future to go design. Um, is there anything else you'd like to touch on Sarah, before we wrap?
1: Well, I'd love to just, you know, talk about the work that I've done over the past couple of years to take, you know, a bunch of the uh, assignments and ideas and philosophies of the D school and put them into book form. You know, we were talking earlier about, you know, the time afforded for some folks during the pandemic, which of course is very unevenly distributed. Some people had much less time and, and you know, were working outside of the house the whole time. But for me, I had a a little bit more time and I had the opportunity to finish this project I've been working on to really um, bring some of these ideas that we have developed and um, worked on at the d.school over the past 10 or 15 years to hopefully a much broader group. You know, I'm very conscious of the fact that not everybody can come visit us in California. Um, but I believe in, in the work that our, our faculty does and the work that our students do. And I, I wanted to share that much more broadly. So, um, I've just finished a book called creative acts for curious people and, um, it's my first book. I'm really proud of it. It's really fun. I think it's a really fun book to get into. Um, so that's, that's what I've been up to most recently.
0: I love that you put curious in the title. It's not a word we hear enough as far as I'm concerned, Maybe tell me a little, if you have uh, a sec, why curious?
1: You know, I think curiosity, um, it just embodies for me what's most exciting about uh, creativity is is like, no matter what you make, you get to learn something new. And that just, I mean, for me, that feeds a part of me that I, I can't quite explain or describe. I like, you know, weird and esoteric information. I like knowing what other people think is weird and exciting, esoteric information. Um, and part of what I love about the way that we practice and teach design is that it is all about acting on that curiosity and following those weird hunches and you know interacting with strangers and learning about things that you know I might not have known I ever needed to be exposed to or, or learn about there's just something about acting on that curiosity that really lights me up and I think it felt like a word I wanted to stand behind and see out there more. So that was, that was, you know, part of my thinking.
0: Excellent. Anything else you want the world sort of, maybe let me ask it this way. Um, So I get the motivation of sharing some of the learnings because some of us aren't going to get into Stanford. So that's cool. Is there anything, any, you know, other big things you hope people get uh, from your new book, Sarah?
1: I mean, I, I really, you know, going back to, an earlier part of our discussion, I I really think this is a challenging time that we're living through in which we are um, in need of unconventional approaches. So the, I mean, that is, you know, whether it's how to act on your curiosity, how to bring more of your creativity forward, we're not addressing all of the problems at hand in a way that is resolving them, right? And I feel that the more people that are equipped with the, the confidence and the skills to design the world around them, the better off we'll be. So I, I feel that you know, it, this is an, actually an important time for people to develop those creative skills and really invest in those abilities because they matter. They matter to your community, they might matter in your family and they matter in the, in the work that you do.
0: I, I couldn't agree with you more and that's why I think your book is so important. Uh, maybe let me bounce this off you. Um, our sense of it is, so we've been, ever since the pandemic started, we've been saying the future needs you and almost exactly the words you just said that the people who have the interest, the desire, and the ability to create the future. Now's the time for those kinds of people to stand up. And the other thing that's a corollary to it is of course, we've never been in a time that is anywhere near this kind of technological breakthrough. And here's the other one that drives me nuts. That I'd be curious to bounce off you. I hear this a lot in marketing. Oh, well, the dumbest thing you could try to do is change somebody's mind. Nobody likes to change their mind. And I, I think that's insane. Uh, 18 months ago, we were not all doing business or going to school on Zoom. Uh, there's a lot of things that we've changed very rapidly uh, over the last handful of months. And... Um, you know, nobody was drinking flax milk 10 minutes ago, and now they can't keep the stuff on the shelves. And so my belief, and I think the evidence is clear, is when you show human beings the value of making some kind of a change, uh, even if it's an exponential change, if they get it, if they have that aha around that, whatever that thing is, they go, shit, you know what? Almond milk is actually terrible, and flax milk makes a lot of sense. And they, they change quickly. And so my, my point is, A everything you said about, you know, what we've been describing as the future needs you. And B, we're living at a time of receptivity to the new that is highly unique. At least that's how it appears. But I'm very curious, Professor, uh, how that sounds to you.
1: I mean, I think that the the shift that we've all had in our context um, and also going through that shift like nearly simultaneously with everyone else has produced this, you know, wide range of new behaviors that that nobody could have predicted. I would love to figure out how do we take that um, rapid behavior change and apply it to some of the more long term, you know, it, it really challenging social issues that we have, like like climate change, for example. How do we take that same receptivity to new consumer experiences? Or the ones that have been forced on us, like, like, you know, use of zoom or, or other kinds of ways of interacting and take that up. Clearly, we have the collective ability to change rapidly. I mean, there's no question. How, how can we apply that same set of abilities to some of these problems that are just slightly less tangible? And, and evolve, you know, unfolding over a longer time scale. That to me is the kind of problem solving that I want us to be able to do as a, as a human race.
0: Amen. Hallelujah. Professor. All right, Sarah,
1: anything else? No, it's been absolutely wonderful to chat with you.
0: I'm so honored. I'll never forget getting the email. I'm like, uh She wants to come on the podcast. Yeah. Anytime she wants. (laughs) So I'm very excited about your new book and I can't thank you enough for this time. And professor, you are welcome back anytime for any reason. (laughs) Thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It was absolutely a pleasure.
0: Well, there she is. The legendary Sarah Stein Greenberg. And she is the executive director of Stanford's D School. The new book is called Creative Acts for Curious People How to Think, Create, and Lead in Unconventional Ways. It's fantastic. Uh, As you just heard, she's fantastic. And uh, why not pick up a copy today wherever you get legendary books? Now, I'd like to tell you about some of the extraordinary episodes that we have in the can coming up for you. If you love creativity, innovation, design, and marketing, then you are going to love one of the grand Her name is Karen Hibma, and she's been called one of the most creative people in the world and she helped create identities brands and names for people like uh, steve jobs and jeff bezos so she's coming up soon as well joanne molinaro who is better known as the Korean Vegan, she's unbelievable. I have to tell you, I kind of fell in love with her. She's a lot of fun, and she's got a new cookbook out. That's Joanne Molinero, the Korean Vegan. Another author who I completely fell in love with is Abby Ellen. She writes for um, the New York Times as well as others, and she's got a new book out called "Duped," and it is a story of how a man duped her. Uh, this guy was a doctor, and he was in the military but he told a lot of tall tales and he was leading a dual life and uh, he proposed to her and she said, yes. And she was about to get in a lot of trouble until she figured out what was wrong with, she calls him the commander. So we talk about all that and so much more. Uh, That's Abby Ellen. So those are just a couple of the episodes that we have in the can coming up for you soon. So make sure you subscribe or follow or whatever the F you're supposed to do on your podcast player these days. All right. We would like to thank my good friends at Splunk. It's clear now more than ever that anything can and does happen, sometimes in the blink of the eye. So now more than ever, we need to be ready for everything. And that's why we need to bring data to everything, because today more than ever, the data is the business. Check out splunk.com slash D, the number two, the letter E, and bring data to everything with my friends at Splunk. Uh, the good folks at One Life Fully Lived.org are the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check them out. The number one, Life Lived.org. My friends at Bottleneck.Online are the world's first dedicated distant assistants. If you need an assistant who's nowhere near you, check out Bottleneck.Online today. My friends at NetSuite are the platform for your growth, for building a legendary business. It's got to be time to upgrade from QuickBooks and spreadsheet to a platform that will turbocharge your growth. Check out netsuite.com different today. That's netsuite.com different. And my friends at Atranet have been building legendary B2B websites in Silicon Valley for over 20 years. Check out n Don't forget to try Malibu Milk today. That's Malibu Milk with a Y. It's the world's first whole plant organic flax milk. And... If you've had it with traditional social media and you think it's time to get real, where you can share your life and connect and communicate with your real friends, check out Hallowapp, App, H A L L O A P P dot com, or search for hello App on your app store of choice. All right, today's information is provided to you solely for informational purposes, and this podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Podcast Network. And it goes, uh, it goes better with Malibu Milk and. Uh, and maybe uh, you know, maybe in a white Russian form. <laughs> we are produced and edited by the GOAT Jason DeFilippo. Check out his podcast, Grumpy Old Geeks. Sarah Knox and Jamie Day do legendary technical execution around here and they build Lockhead.com. The handsome and talented GM Simon takes care of our show notes. Remember to spread creativity, not viruses. Remember that Adam West is the real Batman and Linda Carter is the real Wonder Woman. I don't care what anyone says. Listen to the Tragically Hip. Dolly Parton was right. Thank you, Candy Dandy. She keeps all the trains running on time. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this Oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go out to Carson Sweet, CEO of Cloud Passage. Sorry, Carsey. Not so much, huh? We just ran out of time for you. That's it, my friends. Thank you for uh, hanging out. Please stay safe. Take good care of each other. Stay legendary. And of course, till I see you again, follow your different.